Well, as we transition to the sermon, I want you to know that I never cease to be amazed at how opposite the world's view of life is compared with Christianity. For example, many of you know Sam just graduated from high school. As part of the ceremony, one of the speakers used an analogy that all of life is like the solar system, with you being the sun, and all the stars and the planets being friends and family and people you meet, but they all orbit around you. So you're the center of the world, and you being the sun have to take care of yourself. So selfishness is not wrong, according to the speaker, but is necessary. So you can shine as bright as possible. Now, I totally understand what this person was saying, and she did a good job speaking, so I don't want to be misinterpreted as saying anything negative about her personally. But at the same time, that's a radically different worldview than Christianity, which believes that God created the solar system and in no way are you or me the center of it. And selfishness is always wrong because we're called to live, for, live our lives for the glory of God by joyfully serving and sacrificing for others. Again, I never cease to be amazed at how opposite the world's view of life is compared with that of Christianity, including the idea of love. I just read an article entitled, Top Five Definitions of Love That Everyone Ought to Know, which included, number one, love is never rushing into a relationship. Number two, love is not being jealous. Number three, love is expectations management. When you read the article, that meant don't try to change the person Instead, be selfish in the exact same way as them so that it works out in your relationship. Number four, love is private. Number five, love avoids misunderstandings because conflicts are bad. So just avoid them. Now, certainly some of those things are helpful. Again, I am not trying to be negative on the article. But it's still a radically different worldview than Christianity on the de definition of love, which believes that we love because God first loved us, 1 John 4, 19. So the very definition of love for the Christian flows from the reality that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, the Lord Jesus, to be the savior of the world. So love has to include Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection for our salvation. And it has to include actions such as obedience, justice, sacrifice, mercy, grace, and kindness, and relationships being worked out in community with diversity and unity. Now, why am I telling you all of this? Well, because our passage this morning in the book of Exodus has tons to say about the Christian definition of love. First, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And second, to love one another in very real, very practical, very detailed ways within the covenant community. So if you would go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20, page 61, if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you. Now, as you're turning, I recognize that we're jumping back into the book of Exodus, at least the narrative this morning. So let me remind you where we're at. So if you would, go ahead and flip your outline over to the back side, the side titled Exodus Overview. Because from a big picture perspective, so 30,000 feet, Exodus 1, 1 to 15, 22 is all about highlighting number two on that outline that God is a God who saves. Right? Exodus 1, 1 starts out with Israel being enslaved in Egypt. They're oppressed and afflicted, but by God's great work of redemption, two million people are physically slaved physically saved from the political superpower of their day, namely Egypt. But how did he do that? Just think about that for a moment. 
He did that by raising up a deliverer, a redeemer in Moses. So God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush, right? That's Exodus 3. And as a result of that, God made Moses the man that God needed Moses to be. Moses was not Moses just because he was Moses. God made Moses who God needed Moses to be and commissioned him to declare to Pharaoh, let my people go. Then God provided the 10 plagues and through the substitutionary death of the Passover lamb delivered the 2 million people out of physical slavery through the Exodus. So God is a God who saves. But God is also a God who sanctifies. If you remember 3A on the outline, he deeply desires a people who trust God's provision. So he provided water from a rock, food in the wilderness, and protection from the Amalekites. God desires a people, 3B, who obey God's law. That's why we walk through the Ten Commandments, one commandment at a time. According to my outline, 3B, 3A, that's the distilled version of the law, Exodus 21 to 17. This morning, we're going to walk through the detailed version of the law, Exodus 2018 through 23. 33. Let me just pause and tell you this. This is a radically different way of going through the Ten Commandments than what we did, right? In the past, we did thou shalt not steal, and we spent the whole sermon on that. This morning, we're going to take all Ten Commandments and see how they're unpacked into this one idea. So don't be surprised when you feel like, you know, lots of things are happening quickly. So you'll see that unpacked. You can see it in the outline, but okay. Before we get there, here's the connection that you need to make. In the same way that God revealed himself to Moses in order to make Moses the man that God needed Moses to be, God reveals himself to the people of God. And he does so at Mount Sinai in order to make them the people that God wants them to be through his word. So God reveals himself to his people in order to save them and God reveals himself to his people in order to sanctify them. So they might be a people who live radically different than the world around them. Radically different than the Amorites. Radically different than the Hittites. Radically different than the Canaanites. Even radically different than the Mosquito Bites, right? Radically different than every single person around them. Because they're God's people who obey God's law. So again, we're looking at the detailed version of the Ten Commandments. So if you would go ahead and flip your outline over to the book of the covenant. We'll start with number one, God's commands explained. Pick it up in Exodus 20, verse 18. Follow along as I read. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. So the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Now this section immediately helps you understand the title of my sermon this morning, because we're still at Mount Sinai. All of this is taking place during one big, massive event. In fact, remember Exodus 19, that on the third day, all of the people of Israel, men, women, and children, were required to come to the mountain. God descended in thunder and lightning, smoke and fire, and as a result, the entire mountain trembled. The mountain's trembling, and the people are trembling. They're terrified, and they're still terrified. So they say to Moses, you go and speak with God. We're happy to listen to you, Moses, but we don't want to listen to God. If we, God speaks to us, we will surely die. Okay, so put that together. Moses heads up on the mountain and he talks with God. Well, then how do we know what God said to Moses? Well, it's recorded right here in what Exodus 24-7 calls the book of the covenant, hence the title of my sermon, The Book of the Covenant. 
So what we're doing here is we're reading the words that God spoke directly to Moses, which essentially from Exodus 20, to 23, 19, is God unpacking the Ten Commandments. And he starts with the first, second, and third commandment. A, worship God exclusively. So look at Exodus chapter 20, verses 22 to 26. And the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the people of Israel which he's saying by writing it down, right? You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. What is that? Well, that's the first and second commandment. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself any idols, specifically like the nations around you. Look at verse 24. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen in every place where, notice, I cause my name to be remembered. I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it and you shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness be not exposed. Why does he give those details? Well, what you need to understand here is that the cultures surrounding Israel worship their gods and they worship their gods ornately, meaning tons of silver, tons of gold, tons of idols to which they bowed down and worshiped. They also had ornate altars that were incredibly expensive because they were made with hewn stones. And they built all of these high places with all of these steps and their worship often included sexual immorality. So the unpacking of commandment one and two is that Israel worship Yahweh should be simple. It's in contrast to the people around them. So not ornate, but simple. Not because Yahweh is simple, but because God is the one being worshipped, not man and his abilities, and not man and his perverted desires. So Israel, these are the specifics. These are the details on how to keep the first and second commandment in reference to your specific context. And in that way, verse 24, God's name will be remembered. So not taken in vain, not profaned in any way. So that is the unpacking of the third commandment. Now, as we walk through the bulk of our text, right? Love one another faithfully be. Some things are going to become immediately obvious. First, God is clearly unpacking the Ten Commandments, as I said. Just as you see them listed there, right? In your outline, I do commandment 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. But in order to unpack them, he bounces around. So what I've decided to do is to follow the order of the Ten Commandments rather than the order of the text, just so that you can see how they are so clearly being referenced. It also allows us to move through the text a little bit quicker. So we're going to be bouncing around a little bit, but it's only within these chapters. Okay? Second thing I want you to know, and what I want you to notice, is about how God cares about the details of our lives. You're going to see details in here that are very situation scenario based, but they're obviously things that are taking place in the nation of Israel or in the nations around them. So he's dealing directly with all of these specifics. God cares about the details of your life. God cares specifically about the details of how we treat one another. So some very specific details, no doubt directly related to the things that were happening, but they're in their lives. Here's how you should handle those in a way that brings glory and honor to God. Okay, with that, let's start with the fifth commandment to honor your father and your mother. As I said, I'm going to try to move quickly. So if you would look at Exodus 21, 15. God says that whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. 21, 17, that whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. Wow. There you go. God cares how you treat your parents. Shouldn't curse them, shouldn't hit them. You should honor and respect your parents. I just want to tell you, that's radically different than the world in which we live. That's not always the case, but God cares how you treat your parents. 
God cares also how you deal with authority. Look at chapter 22, 28. I think this is all part of the fifth commandment. Exodus 22, 28. That you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. So God unpacking the specifics of the fifth commandment and what it looks like not only to honor your father and your mother, but also to respect and honor people in positions of authority. That's all part of the details and the specifics of the fifth commandment. Okay, commandment number six, do not murder. God now gives the details of what does and does not constitute murder in the covenant community and how the people should respond to that. For example, Exodus 21 verse 12 says, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie and wait for him, but God let him fall into his hands, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willingly attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. So God is clarifying what constitutes premeditated murder and what does not constitute premeditated murder and how exactly those two should be dealt with. So what does God do? He gives them scenario after scenario. And you can identify those scenarios just by looking for the word when. Look at the paragraph starters and how it says when. Those are all different situations and scenarios that God is dealing with. Exodus 21, 18. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, then the man does not die but takes to his bed. Then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. That's a scenario. Next scenario, 2120. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. That's a scenario. Next scenario, 21-22, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him. And he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, let's think about this, harm to who? Harm to the baby. Then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye. Tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. The Bible clearly recognizes an unborn child as a life that is precious and must be protected. The sanctity of human life is right here. And to kill an unborn child is considered murder, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, life for a life. Boy, that's a radically different worldview, isn't it? By the way, that topic came up as well at the graduation, highlighting the difference between the world's view of life versus a Christian view of life. Next scenario, 21-26. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, 21-28. When an ox scores a man or a woman to death. I'm, I'm not taking you through all of the scenarios. I'm not trying to. I'm trying to help you understand that God cares about the details of life. Here's what it looks like for the sixth commandment. Thou shall not murder. Commandment number seven, do not commit adultery, which is really a command condemning all sexual immorality. We have a great sermon on it. You should listen to it. It was outstanding. God's people should be holy because God is holy, and they should be pure because God is pure. God unpacks that idea with specifics. Exodus twenty-two sixteen. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give, to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. Do you see the detail going on here? That's real life, right? He slept with her, but dad says, I don't want any of this, right? So he weighs in. That's a scenario, and God is trying to help you to know how to manage it. Exodus twenty-two thirteen 13 says... Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Again, God's command that his people must be holy and righteous and pure. So either this scenario had already come up in Israel, or there is a major issue going on with the surrounding nations. Either way, sexual immorality is not to be tolerated with the people of God. Commandment number eight, thou shall not steal. Again, God gives us scenario after scenario, situation after situation. This time you can see them highlighted with the word if. 
which, by the way, is actually the same word translated as when in Exodus 21. I wish they wouldn't do that. I wish they were consistent all the way through. Nonetheless, you can easily see scenario after scenario, starting in Exodus 22, verse 1. If a man steals an ox or sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. Verse 2, if a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. Verse 4, if the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, he shall pay double. Verse 5, if a man causes a field to be grazed over. Verse 6, if fire breaks out and catches so the field is consumed. Verse 7, if a man gives to his neighbor money or gets to keep safe and it's stolen from his house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. Verse 8, if the thief is not found. Verse 10, if a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or ox or sheep and it dies. Verse 14, if a man borrows anything of his neighbor and it's injured or dies, the owner shall make full restitution. Again, we're not going through the details, right? We're not unpacking, we're not explaining them. I just want you to see over and over and over again, he's dealing with scenario after scenario, unpacking the eighth commandment and what it looks like in real life, thou shall not steal. But what's the big picture? It's that we should take care of one another's property. That's the righteous thing to do. Yes, we should share freely. We should not be possessive. We should should gladly share all that we have to be used within the covenant community. But when we share it, it should be treated by the person that we give it to as if it's our own property. Therefore, if that property gets damaged or stolen while we're using it, then we need to make that right. We need to replace it. If it's damaged, we need to fix it. If it got stolen, then we need to buy a new one. Right? We need to pay full restitution. We need to make sure that we're taking care of one another. I would just say that's what it looks like to fulfill the Eighth Commandment. You see how that's all being covered here? Okay, commandment number nine. Do not bear false witness. Exodus 20, verse 16, is very specific. It says, do not bear false witness against your neighbor, against your fellow member of the covenant community. So the nation of Israel, and we see all the details of what that looks like, Exodus 23, 1 to 7. Here we get some really helpful specifics. God says, you shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many, so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. So you are not to speak unjustly about another member of the covenant community, but you're also not to treat them falsely, whether you like them or not. So it's not just the people you like. That's clear. Look at verse 4. If you meet your enemy's ox... Or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor, due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. Upshot. Deal honestly, justly, and fairly with the people in this church. Treat them with dignity, honor, and respect as people who are made in the image of God. One more command. Tenth commandment. Thou shall not covet. Now what's fascinating here is that this commandment is not repeated in this entire section. Why is that? Well, because it's intrinsic to every other commandment, meaning it's coveting your neighbor's house or his animals or his stuff that causes you to kill or steal in order to have it. It's coveting your neighbor's wife that causes you to commit adultery. And it's coveting your neighbor's life that causes you to bear false witness against them. So thou shall not covet. It's foundational. It's essential. It's necessary in order to keep every other commandment. Which brings me to application. 
Let's just take a moment to pause. What do all of these things have to do with us? Meaning, what is the big takeaway this morning? Well, again, even as we went through the details, and you're thinking, man, that's a fire hose. I didn't catch any of that. You are trying to catch one detail, and here's the detail. God cares about the specifics of your life. He cares very much about how we treat one another as fellow members of the covenant community. So in the Old Testament, that was the nation of Israel, so the physical people of God. But now that gets applied to the spiritual people of God, namely the church. So first major point, he cares about his covenant community to such an extent that he's revealed himself to us in the person and work of the Lord Jesus so that we might live radically different than the world around us. Not just in general radically different, but in all the details. Our attitude, our speech, our actions, the thoughts that come into your mind that cause you to raise your eyebrow when you look at the person next to you. Like, he cares about all of those details. That's evident as he goes through scenario after scenario. In the summary statement of what that should look like, the way that we treat one another, the way it should look, must look, has to look in this covenant community, meaning in this local church, is love. That's the big takeaway. Second, I want you to notice before we move on, that there's a method to the madness. Meaning, at first reading, you might think, even as we're bouncing all over the place, that Moses is all over the place in his instruction. But if you carefully read Exodus 21.1 to Exodus 22.20, you will count 14 different scenarios that all start with when a man or if a man. Exactly 14. You're like, okay, well, how does that help us? Well, when you take that reality that there's 14 scenarios there, and then you look at Exodus 22, 21, where Moses says, you shall not wrong a sojourner, which he says the exact same thing in Exodus 29, you shall not oppress a sojourner. So 22, 21 to 23, 9, those are bookends. And between 22.21 and 23.9, Moses gives us another 14 statements, all marked by the phrase, you shall not. So we have exactly 14 scenarios followed by exactly 14 statements. So two sets of seven and then another two sets of seven. You're still like, great, what's your point? My point is that none of this is random. This is not random. This is very specific. So God obviously can't cover every possible, possible scenario in life. But his assumption is that the Israelites will reason, can reason, and must reason from these scenarios so that their relationships, in all of the details, are marked by love. But the structure alone calls for us to order our lives in accordance with God's word. So we should think about our days, our weeks, our months, our years, and our whole calendar in light of God's clear instruction because he's commanding us to live our lives with order and with intentionality so that all the details, every scenario of life is marked by one thing. Radical, preferential, love for one another. That's what he's commanding us to do. And how do we do that? Meaning, how is that possible? Well, see, by worshiping God primarily. So this whole section, the unpacking of commandments 5 to 10, is bookended by the command to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's what the laws of altars is all about, Exodus 20, 22 to 26. And that's what the laws of festivals and the Sabbath is all about, 23, 10 to 19. So the first one was all about commandments 1, 2, and 3. Then he talks about 5 to 10, and then he comes back to commandment number 4. 
So it's bookended. We need to worship God. And that gets worked out in our worship or our love for one another. Okay, look at Exodus 23, verse 10. God says, for six years you shall sow your land and gather it in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat. And what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. So obviously, he's unpacking the fourth commandment to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. But it's ultimately about your entire calendar, that you prioritize the worship of God above everything else. In other words, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Or as verse 13 says, pay attention to all that I have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. So love the Lord your God first and foremost vertically. But when we do that, there were automatic orientation to love the people of God horizontally. God obviously cares about both because both are essential to living radically different than the world around us. Here's a question. Does God leave us alone to try and figure all of that out through our own means? Absolutely not. He promises to go with us, to never leave us nor forsake us. We know that in the New Testament, but it's also right here. Number three, God's presence promise. Look at Exodus 23, 20. God says, behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. By the way, you should be hearing John 14. I go to prepare a place for you that where you are, will be there, I will be also. That's Jesus. You, you already hear that language here. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you and on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared for you. Notice the details, by the way, of who this angel is. Verse 21, pay careful attention to him, to the angel, and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them. Look at this. Nor do as they do. We're supposed to live radically different than the world around us. It's right there. Don't do as the world does. That's what he says. But you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. Summary, verse 25, you shall serve the Lord your God. So this is none other than a promise from God to the Israelites to bring them into the promised land, provided they obey the angel of the Lord, who is obviously more than just an angel. Now, why do I say that? Well, because of the details, right? God's name is in him. And he has power to pardon transgressions, forgive sins, and to pronounce judgment. So this is none other than the pre-incarnate Christ. So A, the promise given that God himself will take his people all the way to the promised land to provide for them, to protect them, and to keep them. But that's contingent on them keeping God's commands. So B, warning given. Because God is absolutely committed to having a people who live radically different than the world around them. He's committed to a people who trust God's provision, keep God's law, and as we'll see going forward in Exodus, dwell in God's presence. So warning given, verse 21. Pay careful attention to him. To who? To Jesus. That you obey his voice. Do not rebel against him. For if you do, he will not pardon your transgression. He will not forgive your sins. He will not redeem you from your iniquities. All for the glory of God's name. Now, as you and I both know, Israel failed miserably to love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And they failed miserably to love their neighbor as themselves. 
We all know already what's coming, right? Exodus 32, they're worshiping a golden calf rather than the one true God of the Bible. So not a lesser God or a different God, but they make an image of God. But the truth is we're no different. We do the exact same thing. John Calvin said our hearts are idol factories. So we're constantly creating new idols to worship, love, and bow down to rather than loving the Lord our God and the people of God. Which means what? It means we need the angel of God, the Lord Jesus, to come once and for all. His presence promised to ultimately deliver us from our sinful, idol-creating, creation-worshipping selves by living the life we couldn't live, right? 100% obedient to God's law and dying the death that we rightly deserve for our wickedness to God's law and then giving us his spirit so that by faith in Christ, we might actually become the people that God designed for us to be. God revealing himself to us in the person and the work of Christ so that we might be a people empowered to keep God's law and to live for God's glory. Dear unbeliever, do you understand? That's exactly what you need God to do in your life. You need God to open your eyes to see the reality of your sin so that you might run to the Lord Jesus because God's intimately acquainted with all of your ways. God's absolutely, he cares about how you treat him. He knows the details of what you've done. He knows how you've treated him. He knows how you've treated his people. So this text is a warning that you might repent of your sin, that you might run to Jesus, that you might believe in him, that you might be saved from all of those wicked details of your life. That's the glory of the gospel when you believe in the Lord Jesus. And to my brothers and sisters in Christ, how should we rightly think about number three, God's covenant applied to our lives today? Well, I think it's, at one level, quite simple. And yet, on another level, I think it's tremendously profound. Because one word sums up all of the commands that we've heard this morning. In all of the different situations, in all of the different scenarios, one word sums it up. A, the command to love which is all over the New Testament, as you know. But if you would, go ahead and turn with me to Matthew 22. We're only going to look at two passages, and then we're going to unpack it. Matthew 22, page 828. This is the granddaddy of them all. Matthew 28, 20, I'm sorry, Matthew 22, verse 36. So a lawyer asks Jesus this question, teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? Notice how that's a singular. Which is the great commandment, singular, of the law? Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Those two are linked. They cannot be separated. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love the things that God loves, namely the people of God. In other words, when it's all said and done, the law is calling you to do one thing, and that's to love, to love God and to love your neighbor in Christ. This command is confirmed, as I said, all over the New Testament. We're going to look at one other place. Turn to Romans 13, 8. Very specific, relates to what we're saying this morning. Romans 13, 8. Page 948. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Romans 13, 8. Paul says this. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments... He lists them. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. Notice what he says. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
Summary, verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. What is everything that we just read about in Exodus? It's doing no wrong to a neighbor. Now, we could easily keep flipping. Galatians 5, 1 John 4, 2 John 2. I'm going to stop here because they all say the same thing. That love for God and love for one another is the fulfillment of the law. That's the big picture application of the book of the covenant that we love one another. As I started in my introduction, with so many worldviews out there, that has to get fleshed out biblically. So let's just spend a few minutes thinking about B, the principles of love. Starting with the idea first that love is an action, not a feeling. I mean, we live in a feelings-driven culture. So when you hear the word love, you might immediately think of feelings as if you're being commanded to give everyone a big group hug when you come to church on a Sunday morning. That's not what it's talking about. Instead, love is an action. Love means obedience. That's why Jesus says, John 14, 21, that he who keeps my commandments is the one who loves me. So to love Jesus is to believe in Jesus is to obey Jesus. It's to keep Jesus' commands. Those are all synonyms according to the New Testament. So love means obedience. Second, love results from acceptance. It doesn't earn acceptance. So for Israel, love for God and love for your neighbor isn't love in order to gain acceptance. They already had been accepted. Remember the context of the law. Was it given before God saved them out of Egypt or was it given after God saved them out of Egypt? It was after. So God already extended saving love toward them. But the only appropriate response to that love is to love God in return. In fact, that's why 1 John 4.19 says we love because God first loved us. So our love for him is always in response to his love for us. And by extension, love for the things that he loves, namely the people of God. Third, love has to be defined by God's word. In other words, the definition, content, and makeup of what love is has to be defined by the word of God rather than the world. So love is not subjective. Now, why is that important? Well, because the world says love means never saying you're sorry. The world says that love means never telling anyone that they've sinned against a holy God. So so love, according to the world, erases the whole idea of consequences while embracing the mantra that I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay. Here's the problem. That's not okay. And that's not loving. Love has to be defined according to the word of God rather than the world. Fourth, love is primarily toward your brothers and sisters in Christ. So this is a command to love the people who are sitting right next to you this morning in this church, in this room. Now, am I saying that That means that we don't love or shouldn't love the people in this world? No, I'm not saying that. But I am saying our passage this morning is focused on life within the covenant community. So this is a call to a discriminating love for the people of God, the church. A discriminating love for the people who have put their faith in Christ. So with all that being said... I want to close by answering this question. What is the aroma of a church that is governed by this kind of biblical love? I would answer that question by quickly saying three things. You might be thinking to yourself, holy smokes, like it says A, B, C. Now we just went through B and he said five things under there and C, he's going to say three more things. Yep, I'm going to say three things. Then I'm going to say one more thing before we close. That's what pastors do. They say in closing about four times and then they keep talking. 
But I'm telling you that up front. I'm going to say three things. And then I'm going to say last thing as we close. You're just prepared for it. Just trying to help you out. Expectations management. Okay? Roma of love. Three things. Number one. Question is, what is the aroma of a church that is governed by this kind of biblical love? Number one, it's a place fiercely committed to worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. Just think about how our passage began and ended with an emphasis on the worship of God. And we know John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that we know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So this is a call to us as a body of believers to be fiercely committed to worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing him and making him known. Second, a church governed by love should have the aroma of dignity and respect. That was, if you go back and you read, that was evident and obvious in our text this morning. So whether you're talking about women, unborn children, the rich or the poor, or sojourners in your midst, they should all, without exception, be treated with dignity, honor, and respect. That's radically different than the world in which we live. But it should be evident and obvious in the church. Third, a church governed by love should have the aroma of relational harmony. Israel was forbidden from spreading rumors, speaking lies, and misrepresenting one another. They were commanded, if you will, to only gossip good things about one another. So the church should be a glorious place of relational harmony. So a place where sins are confessed, transgressions are forgiven, misunderstandings are corrected, truth is spoken, encouragement flows freely, and people focus on what is holy and righteous and good rather than what is destructive, dishonest, and degrading. There should be real love for one another, open, honest, transparent, accepting, and appreciating love. And when that's the aroma, where else would you want to be? Don't you see that's God's design for the church? So as I close, really closing, let me ask you some questions. Are you doing your part? Are you doing all that you can do? to make sure our church looks more and more like God's glorious design. Here's a question. Is your attendance spotty? I mean, love is an action. So that has to start by you being here. So you can love and care for the people of the church. When you come... Do you come with an owner mindset or do you come with a consumer mindset? Are you coming to serve or are you coming to be served? Are you doing all that you can to promote unity and harmony? Are you doing all that you can to treat people with dignity, honor, and respect? Are you doing all that you can to make sure everyone's cared for, communicated with, and checked in on? I just want to be clear. I'm not talking to the person next to you. I'm talking to you. You know how that's the tendency when you hear a sermon. You're like, those are good questions. Sweetheart, are you listening? I'm talking to you. And I'm not asking you questions so you come up with 10 things that you're doing wrong. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I'm trying to ask heart questions for you to nail down one thing that you can do 
so that this church has an aroma of life? How can you grow in contributing to unity and harmony? How can you grow in serving and sacrifice? How can you grow in promoting dignity, honor, and respect? One area that you can grow. Because here's what I know. When the church has the aroma of love, like this, that's a place that everyone wants to be including people who have never heard the name of Jesus. And that's a place where God is most glorified. Allow me to pray that we would be a church like that. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your instruction. And Father, we're grateful for how you get into the nitty-gritty details of life with all of these situations and these scenarios. Father, I pray that it would not be lost on us this morning as if life was about oxen and sheep. But Father, I pray that we would recognize that these principles of love impact every single attitude that we have, word that we speak, action that we take, all of it is on display as to whether or not we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. So Father, I pray that you would be doing a good work in our hearts. First and foremost, that we would love the Lord Jesus Christ, be overwhelmed by your grace in sending him to die for our sins. Father, as that gets worked out, our faith gets worked out in him, I pray that we would be thinking about practical ways in which we can move forward in our love for you, and in our love for one another. So, Father, we pray that by your Spirit, you're moving in our minds and in our hearts so that this local church would be a place where your name is glorified. Pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.